Our Old Testament passage today is Isaiah chapter 5. It's the uh, program says 56. It's actually chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The word of the Lord. We'll read Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14, responsively by whole verse. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. You can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The New Testament lesson today is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. The gospel lesson today comes from Mark chapter 11, verse 12, through chapter 12, verse 17. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything to eat on. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy them, to destroy them, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forget if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who is also in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. 
As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer them. They discussed it with one another, and they say, Well, if we say from heaven, then he, then he shall say, well, then why do you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. He said, a man planted a vineyard put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent the servants of the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, they beat him, and they sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they pitched. And he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come. He will destroy the tenants, and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left them and they went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his teaching. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the law of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and whose inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. This is a series of stories about Jesus, and he's kind of into giving warnings at this point. The king is marching toward his ultimate battle, and the king is giving warnings about his authority. So all of these little episodic narratives that we see here are about Jesus' authority as the Messiah, as the king, but also there is about his authority as the actual son of God. If you hear these teachings, and if you're outside of the family of faith, if you're not a believer in this stuff, you can, you can legitimately hear them about warnings against faithlessness. 
Warnings against not following God's law. Warnings against going against the command and the authority of Jesus. But to those who trust in him, to those who know and believe that Jesus is the God-man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, each of these episodes is all pointing toward the cross. So, as we see Jesus acknowledging and exercising and preaching about his authority on earth, even though some of these teachings can sound harsh, we know that this is the best good news, the best gospel that there ever has been because all of these things are pointing to the cross. So, four pieces in this narrative, and they all illustrate the same theme. And all of them kind of give a, a fuller picture of who, of who the man Jesus was. You know, I was thinking about it this week. If one of the value in reading the Gospels, and especially in reading them in big chunks, like doing an entire book all at once, is that we start to see more clearly the, the actual person of Jesus. It is very easy, I think, for us to reduce Jesus to an idea. Um, if you're in kind of the more reformed end of Christianity, he basically, it is very easy for Jesus to simply become almost a theological equation, kind of the, the missing puzzle piece that makes all the rest of the doctrines fit together. If you're in the more charismatic end of Christianity, um, it's easy for Jesus to more become an experience about what he does for me today. But what we see here is the person of Jesus having a series of interactions with people, and they all trend toward the same theme. And so there's, there's four bits to this. There's the fig tree, the temple, the wine press, or the vineyard, and then taxes. Let's start with the first one. Jesus is hungry. There's a couple heresies that cropped up right after Christianity started that said that Jesus was not actually human because he couldn't have been. Because, and this is, by the way, this is the Muslim objection to Christianity because God is so holy and transcendent that he could not possibly become a human being. But this is a great case to make that Jesus actually was human because we see here in verse 12 that he got hungry. So on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Verse 13, seeing a, a, in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. How, how are we supposed to square that? It's just kind of dropped in there with no context for it. What are we supposed to do with that? And how does that sound to our modern ears? Like, in, for so much of our lives today, life is built on the idea of productivity, right? How, how much you contribute, how much you can do, how much capacity you have, how productive of a person are you? And so it would be understandable, from my perspective, it would be understandable if the fig tree wasn't producing fruit during fig season. And Jesus would get upset by that. Maybe it's time to get rid of that tree. Maybe it's time to make room for a tree that knows how to do its job. But here's the thing. The fig tree was not bearing figs in a time when it was not supposed to be the time for figs. And so it sounds for all the world like Jesus is being incredibly petty. You know, he's hungry, he's grouchy, and he gets mad. But the way Mark tells the story, he's kind of sandwiching the events of this fig tree around an even more important story. He's, he's sandwiching it around the events of cleansing the temple. 
And Mark does this several times throughout his gospel. He uses this kind of sandwich narrative. And he's, he, you look at the outer portions of what he's talking about, and it signifies something much deeper for the inner portion. When you put these two stories together, they kind of seem arbitrary and a little bit ambiguous. Jesus gets mad at a tree for not doing something that trees weren't supposed to do at that time of year. And then he goes into the temple and he clears out a bunch of merchants. The vendors, the money changers in the temple were in some way only doing the things that the Torah commanded them to do so that people could follow the laws of God. There was a sacrifice system. There was a system of of sacrifices and worship that people were supposed to do when they came to the temple. And so all day long, people would be coming into the temple. They would be changing their money from whatever region they came from into into the official money of Jerusalem. And they're supposed to buy animals that were that were to be sacrificed. And these animals that would have would have been there would have been flawless and pure. If you're going to bring your animal from far away, there's a chance that it could hurt itself on the way and it wouldn't be flawless. You get attacked on the way and it wouldn't be flawless. And so to make it easier, they had animals right in the temple and you could exchange money for your animal and you could take it and make your perfect animal sacrifice. And yet, Jesus comes in and he overturns the tables of the money changers and he drives out the merchants. So why did Jesus put a stop to this process that seems at least helpful? It's easy to read this and think, oh, this is, this is about, I get it, this is about religious structures. This is about how, how religious organizations and authorities always fleece the little guy. And Jesus came to put a stop to that. And, and yes, that is a serious danger. It is a serious danger in the church, and it always has been. And yes, we should fight against that in all of our churches in how we we structure things and the oversight that we have for things and how we care for the flock, our attitude toward the powerless who just come to worship, who come seeking the message of grace that God has given to his covenant family. But that's not what this passage is about. This is about something much bigger. This is about what the temple was for and who the temple was for. The temple was for worship, and part of worship was sacrifice. And see here how Jesus, again, is tying his authority as king. He's the one that can go in and overturn the tables. He's the one that can go in and drive out the merchants. But it's also a message about him as the sacrifice. Remember in the last few weeks when he confirmed several times that he was the promised Messiah. He was the, he was the Messiah king. But he also said that he was going to be arrested and tortured and killed. That, he, that his life would be a ransom for many. He said that. This is the language of sacrifice from the Old Testament. So, if you look at the language of the fig tree, the story of the fig tree, the fig tree was old. It was past its prime. For a fig tree, even even when it starts bearing leaves, before it has ripe figs on it, you can start to see little buds of fruit. Unless the tree is old. Unless its time has passed, and then it can only make leaves anymore. It can't make figs. Jesus was not clearing the temple in order to reform the way that the temple was doing its sacrificial business. He did not come in there and say, we need to straighten all this out. We're going we're gonna to make this better because we need, you need to stop taking advantage of the poor. It's not restructuring. Jesus came in and cleared out the temple for the same reason that he cursed the fig tree. Because he went into the temple and he said, this thing is done. The fig tree was old. 
and it couldn't fulfill its purpose anymore. It was done. And so, was, and so the one who created it also destroyed it. And this temple system of sacrifices, of people coming into the presence of God with sacrifices that would cover their own sins so that they could worship their creator God in peace with him. That system is done, Jesus is saying. The real sacrifice, the actual embodied lamb of God was here on earth and he was, and he was making a new way. And so when Jesus comes out of the temple, he makes application to his listeners and he gives them this lesson of the fig tree. But he does it in a really interesting way. Peter says, hey, that tree that you cursed is dead. And you would think that, that Jesus would say, yes, let me tell you why the tree died and all this. But he doesn't. He starts talking about prayer. And the interesting thing is, you can do some serious damage to people's Christian walk if you rip this teaching out of its bigger context. It, it sounds like if you take it out of its context, you can, re, you can very easily make it into kind of a name it and claim it, pray for whatever you want, and God's going to give it to you. And if he didn't give it to you, it's just because you didn't have enough faith. You can make it sound like that, and you can do damage to people. Last week, uh, a woman from our sending church, Karen Kozell, died after she got a diagnosis late last year of a really aggressive cancer. Karen and her family and her friends and her loved ones and all of the churches in our area have been praying for her fervently in faith that her disease would be healed, and she died. Did she or her family or her friends or any of us have a, a lack of faith when we were praying? No. And so Jesus tells us that we can pray for whatever we want and that it would be granted if, if, if we think that, that we can just pray for anything that comes into our heads, and if we have enough faith that God's going to give it to us. That's, that's monstrous. That's not anywhere found in the, in the teaching of Scripture. Jesus tells us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He tells us to pray that we would enter more fully into God's will. And also there's a bit here from the Old Testament that Jesus is picking up on, that if you don't know the Old Testament well, it's easy to miss. Jesus says, if you pray that this mountain will be picked up and tossed into the sea, what mountain was he standing on? Well, because we know he was coming from Bethany, he was most certainly standing on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is across the Kibron Valley from the temple. And from the Mount of Olives, it's actually possible to stand on top of the Mount of Olives and see the Dead Sea. So Jesus is saying, pick up this mountain. Now, if the mountain is gone, then that place is flat, right? Flatten out the place where it was. Throw this mountain into the sea. Flatten that place out. And in Zechariah 14, there's a prophecy that the Mount of Olives would be flattened out and changed into a plain on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the time when God would come and restore all righteousness and justice. It's a Passover passage about God establishing his righteous reign across the whole earth. And Jesus is saying, this is coming true in your sight. So it's not about praying for something ridiculous and knowing that God will grant it if we have enough faith. Jesus here is telling his disciples to pray for God's reign and rule over all of his creation and giving them the confidence to act like they have already received it because they have, because Jesus is there with them. Again, this is all about Jesus confirming to them that he is who they've been saying he is, that he is this Messiah. But he doesn't confirm it to everyone. 
He's revealed to his disciples who he is. And he's told a lot of other people to not say anything about it. The authorities, it seems, are starting to learn a little bit more about him. He's encountered the Pharisees earlier in Mark when he was up in in the Galilee area. But now he's in Jerusalem. And so in verse 27, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, these are new people that are coming in. It's a new series of, of bad guys. They come and they ask him to make account for himself. And he won't do it. He showed them the limits of their own belief and the extent of their own schemings. And instead of answering their question, because they came to try to trip him up, instead of answering their question about on whose authority he preaches, he tells them a story. And he tells them a story straight out of Isaiah 5. He tells them the parable of the vineyard. And this is where this whole narrative is going. In Isaiah 5, God has told Israel through his prophet Isaiah, that he is going to remove the the hedge of protection. If you ever have heard that phrase before and wonder where it came from, it's from Isaiah 5, that he's going to remove the hedge of protection that God had built around Israel. And he's going to remove it because of Israel's wickedness. And that ended up having a very kind of near, near time fulfillment for the people that originally heard Isaiah's prophecy, living 700 years before Jesus. Because Israel started getting taken over by everybody. First, the Assyrians came down and they carted off the entirety of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then Babylon came in and wiped out the southern kingdom of Israel. And then after after Israel came back into Israel, then you have the Ptolemies and the Greeks and then the Romans over and over and over again. And so Jesus here is reaching back into Isaiah, to Isaiah 5 to show the chief priests and the scribes and the elders what this passage is really about. Because in all prophecy, there's there's kind of a a near-time fulfillment and a true fulfillment. And so the near-time fulfillment of God removing this hedge of protection from his beloved vineyard was the fact that all these other powers came in and just started wiping them out. But Jesus wants to show the the Pharisees what this is really about, what lies at the center of all this. So he talks about the owner of the vineyard sending servant after servant. These are the prophets. The message of the prophets is always the same. Repent and trust in God. Repent and trust in God. God has made his covenant with his people. He made it with Abraham. He made it again with Moses. God has covenanted with his people that he would care for them and provide for them. And yet they turned away from him over and over and over and over again for hundreds of years. And so God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And they would stone the prophets, or they would beat the prophets, or they would kill the prophets. And finally, Jesus says, the owner of the vineyard sent his son, his heir, his beloved. If you go back and you read Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, it talks about how the beloved was actually the one that built Israel. And so there's even in the Old Testament, there's inklings of the fact that God has a son. Jesus here saying, He sent his beloved son into this vineyard and the tenants of the vineyard killed him too. They killed the beloved son of the man who owns the property that they are working on. The one who provided security and sustenance to them. And they killed him. This is Jesus, the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world. He's the final and the ultimate sacrifice. He is the the completion of the temple system. So the old ways are done. The fig tree 
is too old to bear fruit and it's done. It's fulfilled its purpose and it's now withered away. The temple has fulfilled its purpose and is now being gutted back to the studs. The hedge of protection around God's chosen people of Israel, his vineyard, was about to be removed for good. And the son of the owner of the vineyard was going to be killed simply for telling people what the owner of the vineyard wanted them to do. But the thing is, although it sounds like this is a a tragedy of a story, we know that what was coming was so much better. This hedge of protection that had been removed from around Israel, it wasn't gone for good. Because the borders that defined God's people were about to be redrawn and rebuilt, and they were going to be built out of stone. Not just a thicket surrounding this nation, but a massive wall that would encompass the whole earth built with Christ as the cornerstone. Because God's favor to his people was about to absolutely explode outward. And the offering of entering into this presence of God, into going into the temple and and worshiping God in his presence, that offer was not just for Jews anymore or for Gentiles who could find their way into the temple anymore. Because the presence of God, with this outward explosion, the presence of God was going to dwell within each and every Christian and among the family of believers, joined together in union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we look forward to the cross, and we look forward to the empty tomb, and we look forward to that moment when the the veil inside the temple that guarded the way to the Holy of Holies, the, 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 the thickest and most dense presence of God, is torn in two forever as we look forward to that. How should any of this in Mark 12 change what I do day to day? How should the the chief priests and the scribes and the elders have responded to Jesus? How should his disciples have responded to Jesus? How should we respond to Jesus? Well, fortunately, the next passage, the final one in this group, Jesus actually tells us what to do. The Pharisees and some of the followers of the local puppet king Herod had come to him to ask him about paying taxes. It's another another case where the religious and civic authorities came at Jesus, but Jesus gets the best of them in every single interaction. So they came to test him. They asked him about Roman taxes. And how does Jesus respond? He says, hey, uh, give me a coin. Who, whose face is that on there? And they say, Caesar's. He says, good. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Jesus proclaiming the the kingly authority of how the currency of his realm will be used. And the Pharisees came at him because they were trying to figure out if this Jesus was like all the other fake messiahs that had been running around Israel for about a 100 years. Or they were trying to figure out if this Jesus was maybe a zealot. The criminals and bandits who would hang out in the suburbs and plot to overthrow the Roman rule and fight for a free Israel. Who is this Jesus, they say. So they're going to give him a little test. Should we live in this society, or should we rebel against it and try to overthrow it? But Jesus, as he so often does, he gives an answer to this question, but he kind of gives it slant. Or he, in fact, answers a different question than they asked. And Jesus is basically talking about here what's called a two-kingdoms theology, that there is an earthly kingdom of rules and governments and structures and... There is a heavenly kingdom of God and his justice and his mercy. 
And like anything else in theology, if you take that too far, this two kingdoms idea, you end up basically ignoring everything here on earth and only focusing on what's in heaven. But Jesus tells us clearly that his people need to live in both kingdoms equally. Live in the world, abide by its rules, and remember that you are citizens of another kingdom. We heard that in 1 Peter. Peter talking to a group of of Christians in exile around Asia, Asia Minor, reminding them that they are a chosen people, a royal nation, a holy priesthood. So, what is Caesar owed? Money. The things with Caesar's images on it. He's owed money. Now, the Greek word for image is icon. And the same word here is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint in Genesis 1.27, when God says, let us make man in our own image or in our icon. And so each of us, all of us, bears that image of God. All human beings have the image of God imprinted on them. It's part of who we are. And so each of us, regardless of our capacity or our productivity or our ability to create, regardless of what kind of contribution we can make, each of us has the inherent worth and value and dignity of somebody who is made in the image of God. So what do we owe Caesar? We owe Caesar things that bears his image. What do we owe to Jesus? We owe to Jesus those things that bear his image. And so we owe our whole selves to him. We owe our whole lives to him. When we are in Christ, we are changed and transformed, equipped and empowered to live out each of our individual tiny parts of his mission here on earth. St. Augustine said of this passage in Mark, that we are God's money to do with as he pleases. And that what was once stamped on us cleanly and brightly has been so worn down by our wandering. And the one who re-stamps his image on us is the same one who first formed us, Jesus Christ. And so that's what we are to take away from this. That we do owe, we do owe the earthly kingdoms, the things that belong to the earthly kingdom. But what do we owe to the person who created us, in whose image we are? We owe him our image. We owe him our whole selves. The system of sacrifices for the old, from the Old Testament that called for various animals and foods, sacrifice to God, that's done. Jesus has said that's done. That's done because Jesus came to be a ransom for many the Lamb of God, the final sacrifice. But because of that, we get to offer our own sacrifice. Ours is a sacrifice not of blood and of death, but ours is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving because we offer our whole lives to him in that way for the glory of God, for the good of his kingdom, and for the life of the world. And no part of our lives gets to be unchanged by this reality. That's what Jesus is telling us, and that's what we carry with us. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would press these words down into our heart. That it wouldn't just be something nice that we think about on Sunday, but that it would fundamentally and completely change every aspect of our Monday to Saturday life as well. 
that as we dedicate our lives to you, that it would change everything. It would change our ears and how we hear, that it would change our eyes and how we see people, that it would change our, our hands and our feet and how we act. Thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Lord, into your vineyard. Thank you for his death and glorious resurrection. Thank you that you have brought us back into your presence, that each of us gets to be this temple where we can worship and praise you forever. In Christ's name.